Welcome back to Refocus with Lindsay Gensel. What you're listening to today, it's a little bit different than the podcast episodes we've shared with you before. This episode, this person's story, is a part of Refocus Together, a special series the team at ADHD Online and I have been working on for ADHD Awareness Month. Every day throughout the month of October, we'll be sharing a different person's ADHD story, which is fitting because the theme for ADHD Awareness Month this year is understanding a shared experience. And I can't think of a better way to really get a sense of that shared experience than by telling a different story every single day. To be clear, yes, that's 31 stories in 31 days. Did I mention I'm a bit of an overachiever? My name is Lindsay Gensel, and along with the team at ADHD Online, I'm so excited to present Refocus Together, a collection of stories aimed at raising awareness on just how complex ADHD is and the different ways it shows up in people's lives. When we share stories, it's easier to find the perspective, ideas, and tips that help us live our best lives. I'm interviewing people with varying backgrounds, diagnoses, experiences, and perspectives. We'll hear from working parents, advocates, engineers, writers, PhD candidates, and more to learn that while we may be different, we are all united by our own ADHD journeys. I'm very excited to bring Jay Miller into the conversation. He was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 28 after having a somewhat public panic attack at work. And he has since turned that experience into advocacy work for developers. And he recently spoke at Refractor Tech on the topic of diversity in neurodiversity and how people in tech tend to get diagnosed later in life. Jay grew up in the South. Tennessee and Georgia, and he loves the video game Tetris, thanks to his grandfather. He also is a United States Marine Corps veteran, and he describes himself as a multi-potentialite or a modern-day Renaissance artist. He's also the co-host of the podcast Conduit, which focuses on the connection between what we should be doing and what ultimately gets done. Jay lives in sunny San Diego, California with his wife, daughter, two dogs, and a cat, and I have so many questions just from that introduction. Jay Miller, thank you so much for joining me on Refocus Together. Happy to be here. I'm going to start at the very beginning because you mentioned your diagnosis came after what you called a somewhat public panic attack at work. Leading up to that moment, were there signs that something was amiss, that something was coming, that an ADHD diagnosis might be ahead for you? I mean, how were you functioning and what kind of led up to that moment? Well, I think the the biggest challenge for me was realizing that ADHD didn't have to come with this idea of like, I can't get anything done. Like that was that was always the I guess the stereotype that had been put before me. So I never really gave myself that that label because I was doing so much. Uh, you know, I had been podcasting for years. I had you know done blogs, YouTube videos, and um, now what we learn is hyperfocus. And like I would just pick something up, work on it, be successful with it, relatively successful with it, and then put it down and pick up another thing and do the same thing. So I. While all of the warning signs were there because they had never been classified as warning signs, I just kind of like brushed them all off. And it it didn't really hit me until the inability to do all of those things. Um, and, And that kind of even goes back to even as a child, like, you know, being a straight A student, being labeled as gifted and kind of all these other things. And it's like, everything is great until it's not. And then when it's not, it's like, really bad. And that was kind of the moment that I was having for probably about the second time in my life where, you know, going from a straight A student to a student that didn't know how to study and was struggling to barely pass his classes to, you know, 
succeeding in my job day in and day out, automating most of it using like, you know, programming. And then once something broke, even though I knew the steps on how to do the thing, I couldn't get myself to do them. And uh, it was at that point where, you know, I knew something was wrong. But ultimately, it was my boss that kind of saw it and was like, hey, I've seen this before. Like, you may want to, you know, I can't tell you to go talk to someone, but it'd be good if you did. That's really interesting. It's interesting to have that support and that advocacy come from someone who is essentially there to make sure you're doing your job. But a lot of the times we don't hear those good stories. We hear the opposite. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and again, shout out to, to my boss, Trent, at the time. He, he's an amazing figure, uh, still a role model in my career and in my life. I guess we, we share a similar, uh, not rebellion against the man, uh, we say, as, as we both have big corporate jobs. But like we, we do our own little things of, of rebellion. For me, it's the wild hair. And uh, for him, it's the giant sleeve tattoos and everything. And it was, it was one of those moments of looking at like the first person in my life that was, oh, he is visibly different and yet still able to you know, function and, and be successful. And that gave me kind of inspiration to, to do the same of, of not sacrificing success for mental health or for my personality. It's interesting what you're able to realize once you get out of your comfort zone and out of your own bubble. And that's one of the reasons why at the top of my list for this project for 31 stories in 31 days is as much diversity and not just in the people, but in the stories themselves. And so you have this very public moment and you and your boss talk about it. He suggests talking to somebody. What were some of those initial moments like for you in seeking out a referral and seeking out an assessment, trying to figure out, you know, get to the bottom of what was going on? What do you remember from those moments? The the initial process wasn't too bad. Um, I mean, one of the one of the nice things that has kind of changed recently is the amount of insurance based assistance that you can get. At least to my knowledge, when as a kid, like my mom had health insurance, but I don't know if that included like mental health. Um, luckily, every job that I've been in since the military has had some form of you know, mental health assistance, be it like, oh, you get so many calls or or so many scheduled appointments for free. But ultimately, it was a matter of just kind of going through the, the kind of insurance channels. And then I got assigned to a psychiatrist that was in my area. And when I went the first time, it was it was interesting because there were there were like so many different people in the waiting room. And like that was and kind of like you said, there was like a diversity of, of experiences and differences. And it was interesting for me because it, it was very much, again, starting to break down some of those stereotypes of like, this is what a mental health, you know, diagnosis, I don't want to call it a disorder necessarily, but like it, it finally unraveled the idea of like, Oh wait, no, I don't, I don't have to have these very physical, like, symptoms for it to appear as a way like you know you watch people like getting out of a tesla and like walking in and being like okay cool this is like all right people are like just i guess everyday people uh and and kind of going in and and the psychiatrist was like how long have you been and it's probably like five minutes into the conversation it's like how long have you been managing your adhd and and you know my joke is I always say well the first thing i said was like what and then like the second thing I said was like, wait, what? <laughs> That's just a very ADHD response. Yeah. So he he was just very much like, oh, you, you've never been tested for ADHD? And I was like, no. He's like, well, you need to test into it, but you have ADHD. And I was like, I, I mean, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Haha. Very funny. And, you know, I, I did the little test thing and I took it home and, I asked my wife to take it first so that like with me in mind, like, and then I took it just to make sure that I wasn't like in my head too much. And like 
they were they were basically the same. And you know, when I brought I brought back both of them, I said, "This is what my wife says about me, and this is what I say about me." And he looked at me. Both of these say you have ADHD. Like, I love that, and I love the idea of you taking home this test because, in my mind, it's kind of like taking home a COVID test or like a pregnancy test. But we know that's that is just not how it works. It'd be amazing if you just you know like swab the inside of your nose and you've got a diagnosis, but it's so much more complex than that. And I want to go back to your time in the military because it's so routine. And so when you look back at how your life was set up, you were very successful. You knew you liked to jump around to things. You had a ton of different interests, which is kind of, you know, a a red flag. And I, I don't say a red flag in the sense of it's bad, but it's something that professionals look for. But then you went into a line of work that is so set and there are so many schedules and orders to follow. And so when you look back at that time, was that a big part of kind of your coping? I think so. I mean, the the military had so much structure around it that I didn't really have time to to think outside of it. And also just the nature of the work that I did. I was on a team that deployed, you know, almost 10 months out of the year. Um, and I did that for three years straight and got to travel all over Southeast Asia and, and, and do a lot of amazing things. And I think that that kind of distracted me because a lot of what I was doing was so fast paced, like bring new people in, train them, deploy with them, live life on ship, which it comes with its own, like, like you're confined in a box with thousands of other people and you can't go anywhere. Um, so you wind up, you know, picking up an exercising habit or, or you know, or just working more. Um, so hyper-focus was great in those moments because there's nothing else to do. And it wasn't until I got out of the Marine Corps that I realized that that structure being in place was so beneficial because once it was gone, it was very much like, well, what do I do now? Like there's, there's no regular schedule. There's no, you know, person, there's no like horns blowing out across base or things to like tell you all the things that are happening that you just are left to your own devices. And, and from there I wound up just, kind of struggling, you know, for, again, maybe that was the, that was technically the second time where I went from like being, knowing what I'm doing into failing, you know, miserably. Um, but yeah, the, the military itself, you know, I, although my, my views on how the service operates and, and a lot of things like that have, have changed in the last decade since I've gotten out of the military. I think at the time, it was probably the best thing for me as someone who hadn't been diagnosed with ADHD, who hadn't been, you know, who hadn't thought about how to start to regulate and create, you know, systems and processes around what I was doing. Right. That makes sense. And it's great that you're able to go back and look at that and also acknowledge, like, how you feel about the Marine Corps now and the military. It's, I I mean, we're all allowed to grow, but you can look back at that time and go, oh my goodness, like this is what kept me in my lane. So you get diagnosed. Did you make any immediate changes in your life? Because at that point, like you said, you were successful. You had a job you enjoyed, but obviously there was this underlying stuff that was sitting there. So you walk out of the office, you know what's happening in your brain and what's been happening in your brain. Did anything change immediately? Um, it was it was a little challenging. Uh, one, my daughter had just been born. So there was a lot of sleep deprivation already happening. Uh, but then the other side of that was um, being on medication for the first time. And that was that was something that uh, honestly, I didn't really have the best of reactions to uh, a lot of, you know, the the way that I've always said it is like, you know, being on Adderall made me feel like I could, you know, stop a bullet train with my chest and not being on Adderall made me feel like I had just tried to stop a bullet train with my chest. <laughs> so there was, there was this, this moment of, of like, 
as as a new parent trying to figure out what to do, having to grasp with the reality of like, I don't fully understand who I am or how I operate because my life has been so fundamentally changed all of a sudden. I'm now like I struggled with it a lot, but I mean, I think in terms of like, did anything change? Uh, apparently my work got better. Uh, my boss wasn't complaining, so that was good. Uh, but ultimately it, it was, it was very, it was a very tough adjustment, but uh, I think over time things improved a lot. It sounds like a terrible time to be transitioning in the sense that you are bringing this new life into the world and you're a first time parent and you're trying to figure it out. And then you're like, well, who am I and, and what is happening here and how do I balance all of it? And it sounds like an insane amount on your plate. So at the same time, I had recently been diagnosed with uh, a medical condition called vasovagal syncope, which is like, it's one of these things that like, it sounds scarier than it is. Uh, but there are times where if I got like overworked or if I laughed too hard, I would just pass out. And the way that it would happen is like my my blood pressure would like instantly just drop and I'd just fall, hit the ground. And then like three seconds later, I'd just pop back up like nothing happened. And people would be like, whoa, what, what just happened? So I say that because we got home from the hospital for, you know, to take my daughter home. And there's a letter in the mail that's saying, hey, because of your medical condition, we're suspending your driver's license and you need to get it cleared through a cardiologist and do all of this stuff. And it took a year to get my license back, just going through all that process. And, and like, imagine where everything is happening all at once and you just have to kind of just deal with it as it's happening. Like that, that was such a pain to deal with. But at the same time, like, a lot of me wanting to persevere through it was the fact that like, hey, I'm a parent now, like, I want to be around, you know, to watch my little one grow up and, you know, to be there for her and, and do all those things. So a lot of this was, you know, just taking it day by day. And that, you know, that was the thing that honestly, I got from the military is, you know, in boot camp, there's this saying of, you know, uh, lights to lights, chow to chow. And like, basically, you you don't think about it long term, you think about it in the moment and you think about it from, you know, breakfast to lunch, lunch to dinner. And then, you know, you take it day by day or lights to lights because they, they say lights when the lights go on, they say lights when the lights go off. So, uh, yeah, I, I think it, it was very much a blur through that moment. But I think had I had I tried to stop and try to process all of it, I don't know what I would have thought. That is heavy. I mean, like, I was already amazed at what you were dealing with, and then you add that on top of it. And isn't there just something about getting something in the mail that's official, and you just know because you aren't expecting it that it's bad? It's just the dread of opening the mailbox, and you know that it's just something you have to deal with. And a year, a year of dealing with it. It was it was definitely the biggest challenge because I mean at the time I you know now working from home is normalized but I had to start carpooling and then like figuring out like how my work schedule was going to change was I going to have to take the bus like I worked forty five minutes from where I lived like that was that was all a big issue and it wasn't something that I could just go and get fixed it was you know being on a heart monitor and like going to a cardiologist once a month and doing all these other things and you know, finally, you know, getting my license back and kind of having lived with all of these things around the same time, at the end of it, things were starting to normalize a bit. But I think it also made me look at it, you know, we all say we have those like life is too short moments, but that was definitely a moment where I started focusing more on development. And at the time I was working in marketing um, and this is where my career like radically changed. And I started working in DevRel or developer advocacy and kind of becoming more of, of an outspoken advocate for not just 
you know, the programming side of things, but also the mental health side of things as well. That's incredible. It's really interesting when you look back and you're able to see what led you to where you are. And sometimes it's really hard stuff and you have to kind of just accept that and acknowledge that it happened and sometimes be grateful because it led to what you're doing. Absolutely. So one of the things I want to ask about, because your story is interesting to me, because a lot of the people I've talked to who were diagnosed later in life, there's some grief that comes with it. But for you, up until that point, it sounds like everything was going pretty well. You, you, know, you talk about your experience in the Marine Corps and getting to travel and all of the great opportunities that came with that. And you know, you're a new father and you have a partner who is supportive of you taking the test and all of those things. So when you were diagnosed and in that time since then, have you dealt with any of those feelings of, you know, I wish it had come sooner? I, I definitely wish I had been diagnosed sooner. I think that, you know, we, we talk about my love of Tetris, like finding my own coping mechanisms and my own ways to, to kind of preoccupy my brain so that I can do things. I, I always tell people when I'm in meetings is like, hey, I'm going to be working, but if I wasn't working, I wouldn't be listening. So like <laughs> having, having the ability to, to understand that that was why. Because, you know, you're, you're always told the, the same things. And it's, you know, I was, I was just in a, a neurodiversity chat on Twitter yesterday and uh, someone with autism spectrum disorder came up and, and they started describing what neurotypical people expect as the same way that we often get described to ourselves by other people. Like, oh, ADHD people, ADHD people do this, ADHD people do that. And it's like having someone go, oh, neurotypical people are really obsessed with eye contact. And it's just like, oh, that's that's really interesting. So like to have to understand like there's a reason why I struggle to do some of these things and it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just a thing. Mm -hmm. Like I think that would have, that would have helped me. But I'll also say that I think a lot of, had I been diagnosed earlier, I don't know if I would have done some of the things that I did that led me to where I am today. So I, you know, I don't have any remorse. You know, I'm glad things happen when they happen. But I definitely think that maybe my teenage years would have been a lot easier, you know. Right. Yeah. Knowledge is power. And the older you get, the more you really grasp onto that. So when you think about your ADHD now, what is one of the biggest struggles that is something you deal with every day? Meaning like, Every day you wake up and you know that this is something you have to actively work towards managing or overcoming or just, you know, toning down a little bit. Um, I get really excited and I, I like, I mean, not, not excited to the point where I pass out, but like. <laughs> well, good. Yeah. But I am 10 steps into an idea before the idea has ever been like fully thought about. Uh, and, and that tends for me to take on more work than is probably healthy. Um, you know, my wife and I have a running joke that I, I take three days off a year to just sleep for 24 hours because I'm like doing so many things until one day I'm just like, I am exhausted. And then I take a day off. I sleep longer than anyone should. And then like a day or two later, the cycle just repeats itself. Um, and, and even in that moment of like, you know, we have, we have regular conversations where it's like, Hey, if we're going to be sitting here, or if everybody else is going to be like watching a movie, I'm just going to have my laptop here and I'm going to be working on this project that I'm really excited about. Um, so I think, I think the idea of probably being more in the moment would be nice instead of being like hyper fixated on whatever project I'm working on at that time. Um, but at the same time, it's, I mean, I told my boss this, like, I really enjoy what I do. And that makes it really hard for me not to want to do, you know, my job. But I also understand that, like, I have a, co I have a colleague in Australia and the time zone difference is so uncanny because 
I'm ending my day when he's about to start lunch. So if I'm still working by the time he's ending his day, like I can expect to get a message from him that's like, mate, what are you doing? Like, come on. I love that you added mate because I'm just envisioning like a work chat and it's like, ah, Jay is on again. Yep. It's very interesting. I relate to a lot of that, even just the wanting to be working on things while I'm doing other things that I enjoy because I also enjoy my work. I think I have a really hard time sometimes, you know, the gray area of what is work and what is life because mine is very messy. It's, oh, there's just, there's a lot of crossover. But your excitement, I bet, is probably what makes you really good at your job. And so to be able to say to yourself, like, hey, slow down, take a step back, because you've had it in the past where you've just done so much extra work, you know, like you look back and you're like, oh, that was a lot harder than it needed to be. Yeah, there's there's definitely been, and I've gotten better of, of kind of putting a framework in place that forces me not to just dive in head first. Uh, but I, I definitely agree that as I've gone and done things over time, and, and of course, you know, we just learn over time, but I've, I've dove in, started doing a thing and said, oh, that's not the right way to do it, only to like work on it for another, you know, three or four months, only to realize that, no, I was right the first time. And then feel like, oh, if, if I would have actually sat down and planned this out, it would have been so much better. But you're totally right about the enthusiasm. That's that's something that I think, you know, developer relations has become a really popular industry in tech. And the, the thing that, you know, for the few people that I've mentored in the space, like I tell them, it's like, you have to actually believe what you're telling people. Like you have to, you have to feel as if it is as important as it, as you are pretending that it is that moment when you're on stage. So for me, like I've, I've always tried to make my work as meaningful or, or as fun as I want it. I want to sound like it is. So that makes my, my job a lot easier because it's like, oh, I'm really passionate about doing this thing. Therefore, when I get on stage, you're going to see that passion come out. And you're going to see like how excited that I am to share this information with you. And how amazing that you get to take that enthusiasm and add it into the conversations that you're having, not only about diversity, but about mental health, because that energy, that feeling, the, the passion comes off of you, I mean, instantly. But you also, because you are so passionate and welcoming and warm, people feel included. You know, I can only imagine that you start talking about stuff that's incredibly personal and probably something that most people would shy away from. And it's just kind of like a safe space. It, it definitely feels that way at times. There, there have been a few moments where, you know, just thinking about the path that I took and saying like, okay, while it wasn't that bad, I understand, you know, I, I grew up in a space where therapy wasn't really considered a thing that you do. Uh, now I tell everybody, like, even if you feel like nothing is wrong, like have someone to talk to, like just to, just as a check in. Um, I and I love some of the the barriers that are being that are starting to break down now. Uh, you know, one of the things I, I love is you know, even on things like TikTok, there are uh, creators who are advocating for mental health and black men, which is just traditionally a thing that we're so obsessed with all these other things that we don't stop and like ask someone, Hey, how are you doing? Like, really, how are you doing? How's your mental health? How, like, how's that going for you? And the more that I vocalize that, the more times people email me and say, Hey, I heard you on this thing. Do you have time to talk about this? Because I've, I've felt like this for years and never had the words to express it, or I didn't even know where to start because that just isn't a thing that we do. Um, and I mean, even, you know, even before this call, someone had emailed me and said like, 
I'm in a position where if I open up about having ADHD, I might lose my job. What should I do? And I'm I'm like, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a career planner. Like I can't like it it becomes overwhelming at times. Like I can't, I don't want you to to do anything that's outside of your comfort level, but it is heartwarming to see that people get courage and excitement and you know maybe a, a little extra push from from me just being open about all the things that I've done and uh, you know the the biggest part of that is is you know I've lived a moderately successful life I I tell people that I enjoy all the privilege of of all the things that I've done and having that diagnosis doesn't have to come at the cost of success. You can, you can have those things. And, and I think that there aren't enough people saying that part of like, hey, sure, it's going to be a challenge. Sure, it's going to be a little different. You're going to have to adjust. You can be moderately successful. In fact, there are entire industries where folks with ADHD strive. You know, they, they, they really do like they, they do or they thrive. They, they do really well because of just the nature of the industry. And I'm starting to see that more and more as colleagues and peers are like, I just got diagnosed for the first time. Like, what, like, wow, this is like my entire world like has changed now. And it's like, yeah, it's great, isn't it? You're like, you know, it's that moment. And just being able to be there with them during that period and say like, hey, look, Here's the things that I've learned just in the times of, of learning this on my own and, and like asking a bunch of people like what they would do and like, you know, creating kind of the talk, you know, that you mentioned for Refactor Tech. Um, that talk has evolved over the last, you know, year and a half where I've literally just went around asking people with that are neurodivergent, like, what advice would you give someone getting diagnosed for the first time? What What would you tell them? What would you like? If you could sit there with them as they're in that, you know, the psychiatrist or therapist's office, like what would you tell them? And just sharing that with people, and it's just opened up so many people to the idea of maybe I should go, you know, talk to someone about it. I feel like this is something we've touched on a lot without even asking it. But when you look at your life and your ADHD, where do you feel like you're thriving? Uh it's it's so hard to to use the term thriving like again i if i look at my career like i found the career that is for me like i was i was podcasting for like 7 years as an independent creator and like not making any money and you know from that and doing youtube videos writing blog posts doing all of those things now i can attribute that to like adhd and having a bunch of different passions and trying to like put them all out into the world and do stuff. And, you know, finding finding a career that allowed me to keep doing that thing, but not also have to worry about like, okay, how do I feed my family as well? Uh, so I, I do think that in, in my career, having ADHD and, and being in developer relations, because the nature of the industry is to pick things up, work on them, put them down, and then and be working on three or four things all at, you know, at one time, and also having wonderful project managers that like will help me say, okay, hey, put this down, pick this up, like go work on these things now. Um, that has that has been like the biggest success for me. But you know, to be honest, I you know if if I can be transparent, even doing this interview, like one of the things I, I was talking to my boss about this, and it was like I don't necessarily want to be the face of like ADHD because I don't I don't think that that's possible like so many people so many different experiences so many different things if if anything I just want to tell people that like hey this is possible even if you don't think it is like if you're in a situation and you can get out of that situation that's, you know, somewhat toxic for you if you have ADHD, I want to encourage you to do that. If you are in a position, like, I want you to feel as if you have a solution available to you. Because that's that's where 
all of those moments where I collapsed, not literally collapsed, but ADHD wise collapsed. I, I realized every time I, I talk about that, I didn't have to like put the disclaimer out of like, oh no, I didn't like hit the ground. That came later. Yeah, that came afterwards. Uh, yeah. But but that moment is like, you don't, I I hit those points in my life because there was no one there to tell me, hey, you should go talk to somebody. Until there finally was, and then that opened a doorway and like completely like jettisoned my career into a different direction, all for the positive. So like at this point, like I don't I don't necessarily think about like thriving or success. Like I'm just doing what I do, um, and hopes that I can encourage other people to do the same. And you know, again, ultimately, just make a a nice, comfortable living for my myself and my family. It's interesting that you say that about the word thriving and kind of looking ahead, especially considering, you know, we talked about, what's the saying, the like, lights to lights? Yeah, lights to lights or chow to chow. <laughs> I mean, you do almost in a sense, kind of take it day by day, you're enjoying what you're doing, and you're living in that moment. And I think that's an amazing place to be. It, it definitely feels good. You know, I'm, I, I, I can definitely say that, you know, again, being being a little bit more older, like I do think about like, oh, hey, am I saving for retirement or am I doing like all these other things? And like, I have a kid and college is really expensive. Like I need to start saving now to be able to afford one semester. Like all of these, these individual thoughts, like they run through my head from time to time. But I think more than anything, it is let things happen as they happen. You know, I... I think about that in terms of the projects that I'm working on, you know, for someone who loves talking about productivity and productivity things, a lot of what I'm doing is not often planned. It is very much go to meetings that I have, you know, that I'm supposed to be at, make sure I'm not missing any of those and then work on whatever like strikes you that in that moment and i mean luckily i have like 1500 projects so like it's 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 easy to have something but it it's often the goal of just like if i can push something into a direction and if i made progress on it like document that progress let people know hey you're working on this and if you're not doing a thing that people want you to be doing they'll tell you and you know i've I've relied on that a little bit. And luckily, I tend to just be working on the right things at the right time, or I just get them done fast enough that I can set them down and then pick up something else. And they're like, oh, Jay's really busy. Like, So it, it, it kind of just works out the way it does. You mentioned project managers being an important part of your role because they kind of you know corral everything and make sure that your focus is where it needs to be. But you talk about a lot of these projects and the way you describe them is like you're working on them and you're working on them and you put them down and you pick them back up. And I imagine at some point they're getting finished. So how have you, what are the workarounds you've learned to kind of get to that point? Because in my mind, I'm like, we have not touched at all about what your daily routine is. If like you're crossing things off lists, if you have a running to-do list, like you seem very casual about all the work you're doing. And I would just really like to know what your secret is and if you could pass it along to me. So so you, you made a, a, a really big uh, misconception. The projects don't get finished. That's the trick. <laughs> the thing that I've learned is that you can you can work on those projects and still create off of those projects. So for me, uh, I put out a, a tool called diversityorgs.tech, which was this idea of like, hey, anywhere in the world, you should find tech organizations that, that specifically focus on your underrepresented group. Uh, you know, obviously for me, like for that, that'd be like black men, but, you know, I cover as many of the different bases as I can. And in that moment, I got past like the minimum viable product. Like I'm comfortable enough having this on the internet. I know what bugs exist. I'm going to write content about this now. I'm going to start like creating off of this thing. 
it's nowhere near finished. There are plenty of things that can be that can continue to happen on it. And as I iterate over time, I'm documenting those processes. So then I'm creating content off of kind of, hey, here's what, you know, a project I recently did that lets me map out where wildfires are across the globe because I live in California where fires just happen. And it's like, I wanted to be able to see where fires exist. So I just, I made the thing and it was like, all right, the thing is made. Now I can document how I made the thing. And the next step in that is like, write a bunch of posts, do a video, everybody's happy, and then set that down because it works. But I could make it better. And I know that I could make it better. And like, I start indexing all the ways that I could make it better. And then when I have downtime or when someone says, oh, hey, we need an example of a project doing this, I can go, I have a project that's doing something like that. I could make it better by doing this new thing. And then I just pick it back up and start working on it some more. But ultimately, I think I like picking up projects that don't necessarily have a concrete end because that means I can just pick them up, work on them for a while, and then set them down. And no one is upset that I didn't finish the project because the project wasn't designed to be finished. It actually sounds like the perfect space for someone with ADHD. Exactly. And and the best part with that is there have been moments where people have said, hey, can you like help with this other project? And I don't like those projects because they do have a definitive end. And it's like, ah, I am working on this. How do I know when it's done? And I was like, this looks done enough. I'm going to ask them if this is okay and then go about my business and never want to touch that thing ever again. <laughs> There's just so much that I can relate to in that. And I just, I love the fact that you look at all of the things that you're doing as like essentially opportunities for growth. You're taking what you're learning in those moments, in the moments that really excite you, knowing full well that you're probably not going to put as much, not even energy, I don't want to say it that way, but like, you know, at some point you're going to move on to something else. Like you're going to kind of just say, okay, I'm, I'm going, but you're taking what you learned from that and moving into something else. And I think that's a very valuable moment to touch on for all of us who kind of sit in our little puddle of shame when we don't finish something because that is so common with ADHD. But to look at it as a learning experience and like you're taking that and, you know, transforming it into something else in your life. One of my one of my, you know, artistical inspirations in life is Donald Glover. And one of the things I really like about his career as as an artist, as a musician, as a director, as an actor, like everything has evolved further and further off of something before it. You know, when he did his original like comedy skits on YouTube, you know, and then that turned into becoming a comedy writer and writing for 30 Rock. And then from there, you know, doing community and all while doing all of that, having this idea of I want to be a musician and then having an album and, and you know, doing mixtapes and then putting out an album that was critically acclaimed. And even in those moments, developing different video and artistic ideas that he then took back into producing the series Atlanta. And like, and now you see him like on Disney properties as like Lando Calrissian and, and it's like all of these things, the, the, the depth and the growth that he had was evolutionary. It, it came off of, I started doing this thing. It was good or bad or whatever, but it is what it, it was, what it was. And then I took the knowledge from that and, and brought it to the next thing. And I have tried to do that a lot with the different things that I've made. Again, I talked about doing podcasting for seven or eight years. I'm now on a podcast network and like I get paid to do podcasts. And now I like, like my sister was like, hey, I want to do a podcast. I'm like, great, let me give you all 10 years of like knowledge wrapped up in a bow to like, and it's like, it's just a fun thing I want to do with my friends. I was like, okay, I'll put that back up. But when you want to get serious about it, I got to hear for you. Uh, and, and just that idea of I've done so many things and I haven't even done them well. I've just done them. And I think for a lot of people, that's often enough because I think a lot of people just don't ever do anything. The fear of starting stuff, it's a powerful thing. 
So I want to wrap things up and I'm actually going to change things up because my last question is always, what do you wish people knew or understood better about ADHD? But I actually want to go back to the questions that you've been asking people over the last year, year and a half about what they would tell people in that moment when they're speaking to somebody and they're in that moment of vulnerability and there's a lot of fear and a lot of shame and a lot of confusion. And we aren't set up as humans in this world to be good in that situation. And I'm curious to know what you would say, what your advice would be. The the first thing I tell I, you know, would tell someone is you somewhere have just the instinctual tools for survival. Like you will not like don't let this be the end of you. You've especially if you got diagnosed later in life as an adult, you've managed to some level up to this point. Now it should be, it'll be different. And now there's a word or there's a, a, a classification associated with it. But that isn't the end. Take all that stuff that you learned, take all the things that you were doing to cope, and now look at it from this new lens of, oh, I have ADHD. Oh, I'm doing this thing that I've always done for years whenever I get stressed out or overwhelmed. Is this a thing that I could, you know, put a little bit of a structure around and and connect that with my ADHD or you know, if you know when if and when you decide like okay, maybe medication is a thing that I want to try. Again, you've you've done so many things up to that point. If it doesn't work, you can say I know what being in a good spot feels like this isn't it and having the confidence to talk to a psychiatrist and say like, Hey, we need to figure this out. Because I think that's a lot of, that's a lot of where like the stereotypes and some of the problems arose of people saying, well, doctor says I need to do this. So I'm just going to do this. And I guess this is my life now. And it's like, that's, that's absolutely not true. There are support groups that you can talk to. You can work with your psychiatrist to adjust medication levels. And you can even decide, hey, medication's not a thing for me. I'm going to handle this with a lot of a lot of like group support, therapy, and many other things. But the question is, you've been managing this on your own for so long and you don't have to. So what are you going to do? Like, what are you, what are you going to be thinking about in those next steps? And I hope that the answer is like, I want to find people around me that are also have ADHD and learn from them. And, and again, it's, it's not going to be a matter of, well, this worked for this other person. So it's going to work for me too. But when you don't know where to start, what tended to work for other people usually is a good starting place. And you can even, you know, evolve off of that. Oh, hey, I don't like, I can't play Tetris, you know, nine hours a day anymore because I have to take care of my little one. Once my little one goes to bed or when I go on my lunch break, like I still get my Tetris rounds in. And now, and now I just bring programming into it. So then I have an excuse to play Tetris during work. I loved what you said. You manage this on your own and now you don't have to. I think that is such a powerful message to end on. And it is just, it is such like a gift of hope to people that regardless of where you are, like you've lived life without this knowledge, without knowing what it was, without the ability to get help. And like, now you don't have to do it on your own anymore. And that's just like, that is a very powerful thing to remind people of. So Jay, thank you so much. Not just for that amazing little nugget to end on, but my goodness for sharing so much of your life and your enthusiasm and your energy. And I can't wait to see what comes with all of the things you're doing. It sounds like a very fun-filled, probably a little chaotic at times life. But my goodness, like what you are putting out, I will sign up for. So thank you. Absolutely. And I, I will say if this comes out in October, 
I am working on a couple of resources for for people who are curious about, you know, living life with ADHD. Um, we've talked about how hard it can be to open up to people. Um, right now, I'm in the process of of building resources that will allow people to share words of encouragement anonymously. Um, so that's that's kind of the next big project that I get to work on for a while and then get it to a point where I'm comfortable with it being in the world. That is incredible. I can't wait to see what that looks like. And look at you taking on a project that has an end date because you want people to enjoy it. Yes, I've, I've, I've put some artificial end dates in there. There might be tweets. Like that'll be the thing is at the end of the day, the minimum product is tweets. But um, there will also hopefully be a website where people can go. And if they're interested, they'll get to hear the stories of what I hope to be a lot of other people. Um, again, we're still in the process of getting getting those people to come and submit, but everything would be anonymous. So a lot of people have already expressed interest in, in sharing what their knowledge that they've accrued, just learning how to live. That is incredible. That's an amazing project. What a gift that will be. I can't wait to see how it comes together. Jay, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. I'm so grateful and I'm so excited to see what's next. And of course, thank you for your candidness and for all the energy you're putting out into the world to help this community. It, it really is a gift to everybody. So thank you. Thank you for giving me an opportunity to come on and speak. To find out more about Refocus Together or to share your story with me, head over to ADHDonline.com and check out the ADHD Awareness Month page, which highlights this project as well as each day's episode after they've been released. You can also find out more by following along on social at Lindsay Gensel and at Refocus Pod.